So this morning, we continue our series, God is With Us. We talked about this the last couple weeks just for review. We said, boy, it's a march up to Christmas, and the world really doesn't support that we slow down and really think about what it means, does it? It creates a lot of frenzy and distraction. And so we said, how could we march ourselves up to Christmas with really trying to laser in on what is it really about? And the word that we've latched onto is this word Emmanuel, which means God with us. It comes out of Isaiah 7:14. It's a prophecy by the prophet Isaiah who says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, and this is hundreds of years before it will happen. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. They will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel is this term that means God is with us. And remember I had spoken to you weeks before that in culture, in Old Testament history, the idea that a God would be with your people is so foreign. Pagan gods were distant. They were carved and put in temples and in, in places where they would go to worship, but they were, they were stone and they were distant. And this, this Israelite God, Yahweh, was the one that was with them. In fact, the word has a, a root meaning of, of tenting with them. And literally, God is in the tent of the meeting with them as the Israelites move that tent throughout the desert. And so how powerful when Jesus comes, no longer is he tenting with us, he literally is physically in human form with us. And so for, for 33 years, Jesus walks the earth and he interacts with us and he meets us in our humanity in places. And we said, what if we, we focus in on Jesus meeting us in those places, those places of, of emotion, of grief and hurt and pain and loss. And this morning I want to talk to you about regret. Regret. I don't know if you ever regret anything in your life, but usually regret comes out of when you've made a decision uh, that wasn't a good decision. Usually that decision is made because something is broken and it needs fixing, right? Now, I just stumbled upon a beautiful website. Those, how many of you are handy people, like your fix-it people? Would you raise your hand? Just confess, yeah, your, your fix-it people. You're going to love the wisdom that you're going to get today. This is called, that's right, I fixed it.com, I believe it is. There I fixed it. <laughs> I mean, the, the ingenuity of this person is brilliant. It gets better, believe me. I love the little logo, too. There's like a little hammer there. Um, great. So, you don't need a new shelf for your fridge, you need duct tape. Uh, I'm sure a lot of you ladies love that, right? Saves you the cost. Of I noticed that the beer is held up really well, and the milk. Very interesting. The sustenance of, of beer and milk together. Um, this is interesting. We don't need a new tire. Just put it on the, on the little cart, the trolley cart. That'll work and I'll just catch a ride, and I'll steer with you on the back. I don't know. That's a little spooky. Um, this one, I'm not sure. Everything about this is wrong. <laughs> there he sits. It gets better. <laughs> I, I'm amazed at the confident level of this man. No helmet. Sandals, shorts, as if bicycles were meant to be, you know, with shopping carts attached to them. So, this one's interesting. 
I mean, brilliant that he did this, but I thought, then when did clean your shower, maybe, did that ever strike you as maybe cleaning it might work? Um, this was really funny. I'd like to see a full picture of the car, because the fact that they think actually someone is going to steal anything in this vehicle is just brilliant. You know? There I fixed it. Um, this one's interesting because that's actually a power strip in a shower with a water heater in there. I mean, it works as long as the spray of the shower doesn't hit the power cord, right? Be nice. You're not laughing at that. That's like, oh my gosh, what did he just do? Um, this one's great. Hey, honey, the, the air conditioner in the car is broke, but I've got an idea. You like that one, Tom, don't you? Could you imagine just driving down the street with this? This would be great to borrow the car for a day and see the looks you got. This one is very disturbing to me. Hey, I'm going to invite a friend over, and I have my power cord on my floating sandals. Yeah. Let's just say the beverage created stupidity in this one, right? Thereifixedit.com. What is it about us that thinks we can fix things. I mean, largely, we can be as crazily in, in, intuitive and inventive as some of those people on the screen, but there's one area that I think we struggle with as Christ followers that I think we continue to try to fix, but we can't fix it, and that's sin. This morning, I, I want you to just face this reality this morning as Jesus meets us right in that space of recognizing that we can't fix that. There is no website for us to, to fix the problem that we all face. Now, the, the word regret means to feel sad or sorry about something that you did or did not do. And wouldn't it be true of us in this room that there are things that we have done and things that we regret not doing? But there would be regret in this room. I would wager to say that if we just took the survey, all of us have been a point of regret in our lives. The Bible talks about this a little bit differently, and they'll use the word guilt. We felt that, right? Guilt means liable or accountable, recognizing that we carry a debt. We have obligation, grounds for punishment. And I'm sure as we look and survey the news that comes around our world, especially in courtrooms, don't you get baffled by some of the things that are unfolding now in cities around the world of arguing about truth, who's right and who's wrong in a courtroom, and you know one of them's not telling the truth about the guilt. And what makes that person so, so confidently, arrogantly, rebelliously saying, no, I'm telling the truth, as if they can fix it. I think we work really hard at fixing or trying to fix this problem of sin. It lands us really to this idea of sin, and we only have two options that we tend to play out, and we tend to play out this first one most. When it comes to sin, sin is basically rebellion towards God. It's moving away from Him and breaking that relationship with Him. It's saying to God, I no longer want to depend on you. 
I want to address my pain, my sorrow, my pleasure, my own way. And so what we do, we find ourselves in sin, we basically begin to rebel and we move away. It can move us away from God and we start to experience what's called ungodly guilt. An ungodly sorrow. It moves us into that space of saying, ah, I don't like this. It's regret. It's, I'm going to figure this out. And so then we begin to vow to fix it. I'm going to make this better. I know I screwed up this one time, but I, I can get better. And we move into this next phase of trying harder. And this is so dangerous because this is what I find most of what we call a religious culture will do. We'll find ourselves sinning. We disappoint ourselves and we feel like we're disappointing God. So we say, ah, oh, I can make this right. I can go into that shower and I can fix it. Even though it's dirty and mucky, I'm going to pretend I can fix all this. And so we try harder and we vow and we keep making promises to God, right? But then we find ourselves, we continually fall over and over. And this cycle tends to just keep taking us, spinning us, this spiral down farther and farther. And the shame increases and the guilt increases. I do that. Anybody else? I find myself, when I fall, I can discipline myself a little bit more. I can memorize another verse. I can read harder. I can pray harder. And, and as if it's dependent on me to fix the problem of sin in my life. I'm definitely this morning not saying that we, we continue to sin. Paul will talk about this. But the idea that I can fix the problem on my own is the arrogance and rebellion that God said, that's why I sent an answer. This is ungodly guilt. This is ungodly sorrow. But Jesus, and throughout the scriptures, God will call us to what was called repent. Move the other direction. You see, guilt and pain are actually blessings from God because they, they help us know. The Holy Spirit will put a finger on our lives and, and give us that conviction, that sense of, oh, I did it again. I'm broken. But instead of moving to say, I'm going to fix this on my own, we move toward God, back to the relationship, and it's called repentance. And repentance isn't shameful and pointing a finger and saying how bad you are and judging. Repent means to change the way you think. It's a changing of way you think. It's a 180. I can't fix this, but God did. And so in a godly guilt, we find that we start to feel that sense of we broke relationship with God, and we are guilty. We are all guilty of sin. Scripture says that very clearly. It says we have all fallen short. That's why it's so interesting in church cultures to fight the, the, the battle of projecting more than what we really are. It's really nice to dress up, and, and how are you doing? Great. And we can say that, but where do we have space in our spiritual journey to go, no, I'm broken. The shower is broken, and it's dirty, and I can't fix it. And this is what godly guilt will do for us. It will move us to be more honest about our brokenness. 
It then pushes into sorrow because we sorrow and mourn for. It's like in relationships in your marriage, and I know for Trish and I, I know that I, I say things sometimes or do things that hurt our relationship. Just in between these services, she was trying to give me some, some uh, adjustments to the message and stuff, and I'll get that in between messages. You probably don't know that, but I'll get 100 things to fix. And, and she had told me that I'm looking at those screens and doing this, and it's the opposite direction. And I gave her that look of, seriously, you're going to tell me, I'm talking about God and the Bible here, and you're going to talk about this as being the most important. I, I was offended. So I made sure I projected my offense. So I sat here before I had to come up here, and I know she's down in the other room. I had to walk down there. And I had to say, I'm sorry. Um, I know that was wrong, and it burdens me to think that I, I would separate our relationship in being that stupid. That's that godly sorrow that, that God's looking for us just to be honest of, God, I'm, I'm sorry. Oh, I've done it again. I've done it again. Paul says this in Romans 7. Romans 7, he says, the things that I choose to do, I don't. The things I don't want to do are the ones I choose. And Paul will admit this struggle. Why is it so hard for us to admit that we're broken showers, dirty, uncleaned, and we can't clean ourselves up? We can't do it. And so this repentance process moves us to sorrow, and then because of that, it moves us straight to Jesus. That's why we need him. Do you see the difference in religion? When we play religion, we operate as if we can fix it. We don't need Jesus. So Jesus just becomes a nice spiritual icon. But the reality is, no, no, we need Jesus really to fix us. And we need to be honest about we need fixing. There's no special spiritual website. Say, ifixedit.com, and here you go. And the reality of this too, though, in our fallen, broken state, we'll sin again. But this cycle, notice I'm doing the hands right. <laughs> Can you tell my wife that, please? <laughs> Such a good learner. Um, that repent cycle is so much more beautiful because you're embracing the sinful you. You're not embracing your sin. Scripture says, repent and move away from it. But it's because I want relationship with you in the messiness of your brokenness. It is this framework that we're going to address guilt because guilt can be positive or negative. Either you operate with the idea that you can fix your guilt and your pain and so you become very spiritual you vow, you become more disciplined, you project that onto everybody else, you probably become very self-righteous, and yet inside you're broken. Or the other way, it could be very positive, and you have a humble outlook on the reality of what you really are. You and I are broken. So guilt also, though, can cause us to avoid God, and that will debilitate us. 
See, the longer we operate in this shame cycle, this brokenness cycle, the longer we, we, we do this spin, we find ourselves distancing ourselves from God and, can I also point out, others. Because you can't keep the facade up, so if you keep breaking and you vowing and you're disciplining yourself, you step away from God and you're stepping away from relationships with people because you can't let them know. You can't let them know that you're broken, that the shower is dirty and messed up. And so we pray, play religion, right? How are things in your soul? They're good, they're good. And you're not authentic. So we find ourselves, as Mike read, in John 21. Why is this powerful? Think about what's unfolded. Over a week earlier to this, Peter himself, the one that says, I'm strong enough to will myself to love you and I will die for you, Jesus, who then finds himself in front of Jesus, who heard it and saw it, deny him. Couldn't we say this morning, maybe the worst sin, there's a lot of sins today, for someone to stand up in this room and say, I actually deny Jesus Christ, that he was not the one. It, it would be blasphemy, right? It would be like, <gasps> Peter, Peter not only does this, he does this in front of Jesus. He denies him in front of him. I don't know about you, but sometimes I, I'm very much like Peter, thinking, well, I would never do that. Standing in front of Jesus, no way. Maybe he's a reflection of probably where we're all at. Peter does this. Now, Peter has seen Jesus before. Peter, see, Peter saw Jesus after the resurrection on Resurrection Sunday. He also saw him that evening when he came and met the disciples. Remember, they went and told Thomas and saying, hey, we just saw Jesus. So Peter's seen Jesus, but think about this. The awkwardness of that. How many of you have had a blow up with a friend or family member and you don't talk about it again? It never got resolved, but you still see them. Anybody? Come on, just fess up. So you've never talked about the issue. That's like the thing of, hmm, I hope that doesn't come up. You've got to wonder what Peter is thinking. In this moment that he's going to see Jesus... He hasn't said anything about it. Maybe he forgot. I mean, just in, in the way he's operating, maybe he doesn't remember. It says, afterward, Jesus, again to his disciples, he sees them in the Sea of Galilee. It says, early in the morning, Jesus is standing on the shore. They're not catching anything, right? And they don't realize it's Jesus. And he calls out to them, friends, have you caught any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat. And so they do. At that point... John wants to make sure we know this. Now, John wrote this gospel. John does this a few times. John's another one of those guys I don't want to hang out with because he's such a goody two-shoes. Listen. <laughs> then the disciple whom Jesus loved. Really? You had to put that in there, John? Okay. <laughs> he does that a few times. I think he said the one that ran faster than Peter. I mean, a, a few things. There's a little bit of a competition thing here for these two. But he notices it, the Lord, and he shouts, it's the Lord. Now, I had not picked up on this. I thought Peter would have been the one saying, oh, 
I don't want to see Jesus. But look at his response. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say it is the Lord, he wraps his outer garment around himself. It's so funny, commentaries, you can tell if someone's conservative or a little bit less conservative. The conservatives were saying he had a loincloth on. The non-conservative says he was naked. Naked fishing I don't understand, so I'm just telling you, <laughs> there's some debate on that. I don't want to see it either. Uh, but look at Peter wrap his garment around him and jump in the water. He can't wait to see Jesus. The other disciples fall in the boat, and that is full of fish, and they're not afar off the shore. Jesus says to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught, because Jesus is starting a fish fry. He's starting a fish fry. He's starting a meal. Simon Peter climbs on the boat and drags this net ashore. Again, 153 fish, lots of fish. It's tearing the net. He says, come and have breakfast. I said this at the first service. If you want to know people, go have a meal with them. You guys, Sunday morning, we're so like, it happens all so quick here. Hey, can I just say greeting time isn't going to establish much of a relationship with these people. Go have meals with people. Invite them in your home for a meal. Jesus has a meal. So none of the disciples dared to ask. Again, you figure Peter's getting set up for something, but uh, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. So Jesus, again, this is not the first time they've seen him. It's probably about the third time that they've seen him. Could be the fourth for Peter. Before I go in this last section, though, and this is something new that I'm kind of unpacking for me in this text, Jesus is going to address Peter. Jesus is going to address Peter three times. The number three has massive significance all throughout Scripture. How many times does Peter deny Jesus? Three times. How many times does a Jew is required to forgive somebody? Three times. Good job. Uh, I don't think it's a mistake that Jesus is going to ask him three times a question. But he's going to ask about love, and in the Greek text, love has three different Greek words. Eros meaning a sexual love. He doesn't bring that up in here, but phileo and agapo. Phileo is the spontaneous natural affection with more feeling than reason. It's an affection from feeling. It doesn't mean it's bad love. It just means it's when you feel in love, right? And those are good things, and it's the feeling of love and infatuation, and that's not bad. Agape, though, is to love the undeserving despite disappointment and rejection. It's a deeper form of love. It's the highest love of the will, a commitment to love. It's when a couple comes up. It's, it's, I can tell it. The groom feels phileo when he sees his bride. But the moment he says, I do, what is he saying? Agape, I'm committing. And so... We know that in marriage, what? We don't always feel the feeling, right? And it's true love is tested when it has agape. Now, I would also say, though, agape without some flail would be a struggling type of relationship. And so both work together. Phileo being feeling, agape being this deeper committed love. Obviously, the orange and blue. So watch this. Verse 15, when they had finished eating... Jesus says to Simon Peter, and he says it in an interesting way. He says, Simon, son of John. Now, why is that important? Jesus has renamed Peter. 
He renamed him Peter. He doesn't use that. Some would say he's setting him up for a rebuke. Setting him up for calling him out. Now, I love what this one translation talked about. It said, or is Jesus calling Peter to remind himself back where he came from, what he really is? See, Jesus names him Peter, but he really is this sinful, broken Simon, son of John. It says, do you love me? Do you agape me? Do you decide to love me with that full commitment no matter what it costs you? More than these. More than the fishing. More than the fishing business. More than hanging out with friends. Yes, Lord, Peter says. You know that I phileo you. I have that feeling of love and it feels good. Jesus says, feed my lambs. It's a verb. It means be about the ministry of caring for people. But Jesus, again, says, Simon, son of John, do you agape me? You ever had a parent, do you remember, or someone say, they ask you the question, and then all of a sudden they go, I'm going to ask you it again. And then you're like, oh, no. Am I getting this answer right? It's for emphasis, right? It's for, it's for the, the listener and the person that's receiving this question to think deeply about this. It says, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. Again, Jesus is saying, do you have this deep, committed, unfaltering, no matter life or death, and all Peter can answer, isn't it beautiful? I have the feeling. Peter's starting to understand what? He fails. He can say that he won't deny Jesus. He can say that he'll go to death with him, but recognizing that he's a dirty, broken shower recognizing that he can't fully do it. What do we notice about Jesus in this interaction? Could you imagine what Jesus would have felt being beaten, being arrested, and having the disciple, one of the ones that you love, that inner circle, deny you? I mean, as a parent, could, could, I couldn't imagine my, one of my daughters saying, I don't know you. You're not my father. The relational break. Jesus not once says, all right, now that we've eaten, eaten breakfast, we've got to deal with this issue, Peter. We've got to deal with what you hurt, how you hurt me. I'm going to make you feel shame and guilt by what you did to me. I can't believe you did that wrong. Repent and ask for forgiveness. Jesus doesn't do this. Jesus meets him and just says, do you agape me? And Peter's confession, oh, I'd so love in my flesh and vowing and trying harder to say, yes, I agape. But all I can say is, I feel that love as best I know how. So the third time he says, Simon, son of John, do you phileo me? Look what Jesus does. He changes it. Do you phileo me? Do you, do you have that feeling of love? Could you imagine now Peter hearing Jesus say, phileo, not agape? It's like the bar has been lowered and Jesus kind of acknowledges, I do know your heart. I do know who you are. I do know the brokenness of the shower of your life. I do know that you can't fix it and I'm glad you recognize it too. 
Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I phileo you. This may not seem on the surface as a big deal. But friends, this morning in a world that we feel so much guilt and shame, like we can work harder and be better for God, it's a recognition that Peter finally realizes he can't do it. And he needs Jesus. He embraces the brokenness of who he is. You see, godly sorrow leads us back to the feet of Jesus, and it's why he died. Jesus isn't just a nice icon that we can put on stained glass and put on crosses and look at that. It's the reality that we're broken and we can do nothing about that. Paul will talk about this in 2 Corinthians. He says, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. You see, living in this, living in this side of moving towards Jesus, even in the midst of sinning continually, I'm not regretful because I recognize my broken state. I'm sorrowful. Lord, I've done it again. And I want to get better, but I understand that only through your transformation of my life, only through your power, only through your blood, only through your body, am I made perfect. Nothing I can do. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Not saved by works. You see how religion can become so powerfully damaging and distancing for us and such a facade of looking great, and that's not who we are. It's as if this morning we need to recognize that ugly, broken shower and how we laughed this morning about all those fix-its. But I wonder what heaven looks at some of how Troy's tried to fix his life. Putting all the stuff in there and trying to make it all work. 2 Corinthians 12, 7-10 says, because of the extravagance of those revelations of who Jesus is. And so I wouldn't get a big head. I was given the gift of a handicap. Listen to that. Paul's saying this. I was given the gift of a handicap to keep me in constant touch with my limitations. You ever thought about that? The pain and the struggle you have might be the reminder that you need Jesus. Satan's angel did his best to get me down what he actually, in fact, did was push me to my knees. No danger then of walking around with high and mighty, like the Pharisees. At first, I didn't think of it as a gift and begged God to remove it. Three times I did that, and he told me, my grace is enough. It's all you need. Let's leave that there because that is a reminder to you that you can't do this. You can't fix it. My strength comes into its, its own in your weakness. Only when we begin to admit our sin is Jesus entering into that place and saying, that's why I died. I don't want to be a part of a church community that won't admit they're broken. Jesus will not enter into the lives of people when they're trying to play religion, when they're trying to do it on their own. He's going to wait until you find yourself on that shore at that fish fry where Peter realizes, Lord, I can't. Once I heard that, I was glad I let it happen. I quit focusing on the handicap and began appreciating the gift. 
It was the case of Christ's strength moving in on my weakness. Now I take limitations in stride with good cheer. These limitations that cut me down to size, abuse, accidents, opposition, bad breaks, I just let Christ take over, and so the weaker I get, the stronger I become. Jesus this morning is saying he wants to embrace the brokenness of you, embrace your weakness. In Genesis chapter 3, there's a beautiful scene, crazy as it sounds, that Adam and Eve fall. They commit the sin of rebellion to God. They move away. And what's the first thing they do? They find the animals, the skin of animals to clothe themselves. They, they find stuff to, to cover themselves up, the fig leaves. They, they want to be hidden in their shame. It's what we do. We quickly want to hide the shower. We want to hide how broken and messed up we are. What's God's first question? It's not, how dare you? It's not even shaming. He says, where are you? Where, where are you? Shelly's going to come up and lead us in a special song, and we're going to call you into to communion. And I think that's the question this morning. Jesus is saying, where are you? You're not to hide. Because when you hide and take communion, you're saying Jesus is just a religious activity. But when you are admitting where you're at, here I am, Lord, broken, and I need Jesus. He's calling you right where you're at, in the midst of your regret, in the midst of your brokenness, in the midst of your shame. Friends, that's why we take this. Not because we're going to vow to be better, because we are moving back towards the relationship that God provides for us through his son Jesus and that he would give the ultimate sacrifice for us. This morning we have a chance to embrace the power of the cross that makes us perfect. We don't. In some ways this morning it's you embracing the weakness you have, the sin you have. Father in heaven, as we hear these lyrics, might we be moved back to the cross, to the power where chains can be dropped, we quit trying to try harder, and move back towards you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.